0: Is locked and ready to fire. Hello and welcome back to Federation Radio, with me, your host, Floyd, once again. And I took a little bit of sure leave, you could say, for, uh, oh, I don't know, how long has it been now? Six months? Something like that? I apologize, I only intended to take December off and a little bit of January, and then... It just kind of spiraled, and I've been busy. And then I had—I tried to come back a month or two ago, and then I had a lot of problems with my recording software. I had problems with the Audacity program not wanting to function for me, and then I kind of gave up on it for a few other week or two. But I am back. I've got everything functioning again, and I'm ready to upload. And I am ready to record a bulk episodes, both. Because I've recently gotten back into Star Trek again myself in my personal time because of Picard Season 3, which, while I said earlier I think in an episode I didn't like the series of Picard very much, I'll take it back a little bit and say I wasn't such a huge fan of Season 1 and 2 was kind of okay, but Season 3, I suggest any Star Trek fan watch Season 3 of Picard. It was, I have complaints about it and other things to say, but th- this isn't about that, so... We're going to go back to the original series, but I'll just say that like, I enjoyed it, and it has sort of sparked a bit more love for Star Trek for me recently, and it made me really really want to come back to Federation Radio and record some more episodes, so here we go Now instead of talking about uh, Picard, which takes place, I don't know, a little over a century from the point of this episode, we're going all the way back to the journey of Babel, which is season 2 episode episode is it jeez i should have written that down uh hold on journey of babel episode 10 of season 2 of the original series which is pretty fucking cool i have to say it's the original episode where we first get to meet a couple of species that we hadn't met yet One of my personal favorites, the Andorians, who in this episode don't actually do a whole lot, they're a very minor role, but going forward, like, Andorians are one of my personal favorite races, I don't know why, something about the people from an ice planet that have little antennas, dark blue skin, and white hair, I don't know, something about them I just really like, and you'll see later on as they become more involved in certain series that they're pretty cool, in my opinion, very underrated. We also get to meet, for the very first time in this episode, the Tellarites, which are the other, I think I've said before, but the original foundation of the Federation and its founding species were, of course, humans from Earth, with the with that form the Federation. There's the Vulcans of Vulcan, but then there's the Tellarites and the Andorians, who are quite often forgotten, but were two of the founding members as well, the four of them together uniting... Putting aside most of their problems and choosing to be diplomatically aligned as a block is basically what sparks the Federation and turns the Federation from a couple do-gooder humans into a real force to be reckoned with. When they combine their sciences, their technologies, and they actually coordinate together to protect each other and each other's friends and other planets that they're working with, they really become a force. The Federation becomes something not to scoff at. But In this episode, we start off with a fun little scene of everyone in their dress uniforms, which, you know, if you've ever seen military stuff, you know they have dress uniforms, and dress uniforms are like your fancy uniforms that you have to wear when a politician visits a military base, or something like that's happening, and that's basically what's happening. At the start, we get a little conversation between McCoy and Spock, where he asks him how to do the Vulcan salute, you know, the middle fingers being parted in the middle, the famous live long and prosper hands thing. We see Dr. McCoy trying to learn it because the Vulcan ambassador is coming aboard and he wants to be respectful. And he talks about how he's getting over this and says, oh, well, at least he's the last one to come aboard. And makes a point of mentioning that, like, the Talarites and the Endorians are already aboard and there's, I forget how many he said, but there's a bunch of delegates. Because on the ship, we don't really get any of their names, but we do see there's a couple species aboard. It's not just the four of them. They're the four major species, but there are a lot of others that I assume are part of the Federation, or at least diplomatically aligned, that are also getting a vote on this matter. Which, we learn later, the matter that they're all on board for is that there's a system called Corridon, Corridon Four or something, I forget the exam, no, it doesn't matter we get very little from Corridon anyway. But the Corridon system apparently has an abundance of dilithium crystals, which we've talked about before, is what powers the the, the warp drives that the whole Federation uses. So they're incredibly important. And this planet, according to Ambassador Sarek, who we meet at the start of the episode, which is what they're having their conversation about, like I mentioned before he comes aboard, he says later on that, Corridan has an abundance of it but a very small population which makes it easy for illegal mining activities to be done on the planet and for the people not to be fairly compensated and what they're actually discussing is inviting Corridan officially into the Federation and all these ambassadors are going to a place called Babel where they're going to hold a conference and they're all going to vote on this matter about bringing them in. Now of course the Enterprise as the flagship of the Federation and the heaviest armed and Most respected ship of the Federation has been chosen to pick all of these ambassadors up and drop them off at Babel and protect them, which makes sense. That's the sort of thing you expect a flagship to do. And so, like I said, we go back to Ambassador Sarek is coming aboard now. Sarek is kind of a cool character. He's not my favorite, but he is a character that spoilers we're going to see a lot more of Sarek going forward. And as a Vulcan, he is one of those characters that you're going to see in more than one series. Because they have a lifespan of, well, I don't actually know exactly what a lifespan of a Vulcan is, but it's around about 200 years-ish. It's, it's a little over double an average human lifespan. And we'll see this again with other Vulcan characters, but quite often Vulcan characters are able to show back up in future series, even if there has been like a significant time jump, because they don't die in that time, like they're still around. Like Sarek says in this episode that he is 102 And he's fine, like Dr. McCoy comments what made you retire from your position at the Scientific Academy, because we learned that he worked for the Vulcan Science Academy and he asks him you know, why did you retire? It's unusual for a Vulcan of your age to retire why, you're only 102 that's quite young for a Vulcan and you know, and he responds with, I just had other things on my mind, and looks at his wife and it's sort of sweet, as sweet as a Vulcan can be Uh, secretly we'll learn why later he had medical reasons why he um stepped down, but he's keeping that under the wraps, as we learn, even from his wife. Which is something that we tend to do. Men, I say, when I say we. Men are very... I think if one person in a couple gets sick, the one that is more likely to not tell their partner because there's nothing their partner can do and it stresses them out is the man. Quite often a man will not tell people that he's sick until he's basically dying, which is what happens here. But anyway, he comes aboard, we get the whole, you know, everyone's out, they're blowing the whistles, they're doing the official, we have an official man on board, an important person, Ambassador Sarek. Kirk's out there with his shiny uniform on, everyone's standing at a pretty. He comes aboard, and immediately you get this sense that he doesn't like Spock. Because Spock's there, and Kirk says to him, it's a joy to have you aboard. No, maybe an honor, I forget exactly what he said, but something along those lines. Like, it's an honor to have you aboard, Ambassador Sarek. I have a full um, tour of the ship planned for you. My first mate, Mr. Spock, should be the shall be the one to show you around. And Sarek kind of cuts him off, almost rudely. He looks at Spock once, and then he looks back at the captain and says, I would like to request a different crew member, sorry. A uh, different crew member, Captain. And it's kind of rude. But it's a very Vulcan way of doing it. Like, he has a reason. It's logical that he doesn't want Spock to do it. And in his mind, he doesn't have to tell you. So, while it's rude what he's doing, it's also... That's just how they are. Sometimes they come off as rude. And then we get the big drop. The lore drop. The moment that everyone watching the show back in the day probably blew their little minds about. When Kirk turns to him, because obviously the Enterprise is currently over the board... O- over the top, I was going to say. they Somewhere in the orbit, that's the word, in the orbit of, Vul- of planet Vulcan, the capital of the Vulcan people, when they pick him up. And he turns to Mr. Spock and says, well, since you won't be giving the tour, Mr. Spock, we're going to be over the top of Vulcan for about two more hours if you would like to take some quick leave to go and visit your family. Which, you know, I have to say that I really like that. I think that's a nice moment that shows, like, they're friends, but also I think Kirk will do this for any of his crewmates if you're about- over the top of their planet. He might just say, hey, no, don't have to put in for sure, leave or whatever, we're here for two hours, go quickly visit your family. I'll make sure that you're back aboard before we leave. That's a nice gesture, and then you get the mind-blowing part where it's kind of an awkward, you see Ambassador Sarek and Spock kind of look at each other briefly, as well as Ambassador Sarek's wife. And then Mr. Spock sort of just says very professionally to Kirk, Captain, Ambassador Sarek and his wife are my parents. And this, and then it starts the intro, like, there's a bit of a shocked look on McCoy and Kirk's face, and then it starts playing the intro song. You're like, oh damn, we're meeting Spock's family. This is not just a Vulcan episode, this is Spock personal episode. Which is kind of cool. I, And it is partially a Spock personal episode, but from my feeling, the Spock stuff is more of a secondary story. Because Star Trek likes to do plot A and B's. They like to have two, sometimes three storylines going on at once. That way they can evolve lots of characters in different ways. And on the side we have the Spock and his family stuff. And in the main front we have, well, the other stuff that happens. Which, you know, later on we see, not long after this, Kirk is apparently giving the ambassador and his wife the tour of the ship himself. While he has sent Spock up to the bridge to take command, essentially, while he's busy doing diplomatic things. And... At one point, Ambassador Sarek says to the captain, I'm afraid I'm a th- quite tired, Captain. I am going to go to my quarters and meditate for- briefly. And then respectfully, you know, Kirk nods and he goes off. And then Sarek's wife turns around and says, Well, Captain, I would still like the tour. I would still like the tour if you're willing to give it. And Kirk kind of smiles because, keep in mind, remember that Spock is half-human. So when I say Sarek's wife, she's not a Vulcan, she's a full-blooded human. This is just a human woman. Like the Vulcan leaves Sarek and this human woman stays and just like anyone else. Kirk's interested because he's like, okay. And he sort of says to her, "I have a feeling that Ambassador Sarek and Spock don't quite get along." And I think that's a shame because Spock is my great what he say? I don't think he says greatest. I think he says Spock is my best officer and I trust him with my life. I'd leave him in command of the ship in an instant if I had to leave. And she just sort of smiles and she says, it's nice to see that he has a friend like you because he's always struggled making friends and he's a man who has been trapped between being human and being Vulcan. Two very different worlds and he's had a hard life. And she's very happy and says that I'm very glad he made a friend like you. And that's nice. I think that's something that, you know, we already knew but it's nice to see it from his mother's point of view. That she's happy and she tells a little bit about him over the episode but you know they do the tour and then later on it mostly cuts away like we presume he showed her the rest of the ship but we don't see it then it cuts to a dining scene well not like a dining scene more like a buffet and we see a bunch of aliens all sorts of aliens hanging out in some kind of hall there's these spreads of food and it's it's weird food I don't know original Trek had this weird idea about food and what it should look like in the future and I'm kinda glad they went back on that as time went on because it's kinda strange, like you've got a platter of what looks like Play-Doh cubes of multicolours that are stacked up. And I think the idea is meant to be that they're like condensed food. Kind of like if you look up like in the sixties what astronauts would have, basically protein pastes and stuff like that. It was the idea was you would pack as much nutrition into something as possible that could be sealed and taken to space. Because you don't want to have much carry weight, you don't want a cooking time and all that sort of stuff to have to be done on the ship. So yeah, this basic stuff. And Star Trek feels like it took that idea and then tried to like ramp it up. What if we were 100 years and 100 or 200 years in the future? What might that look like? And apparently, multicolored Play-Doh is what they came up with, because <laughs> that's what it looks like to me. It just looks like a stack of Play-Doh that they're vaguely shaped to try and look like cubes and fruit. Doesn't look appealing to me. Maybe it's super tasty. Maybe it's like lollies and you bite into it and it's got all this flavor. I wouldn't be surprised, but it doesn't look good. But anyway, we have the food platter and we see... Well, this is actually the first introduction of the Tellarites in this moment because we see the Tellarites here, which are these humanoid pig people is the only way I can describe it. They have almost... I think they only have like two fingers, so their hand comes off almost more like a hoof. It's not a hoof. like It does have two big thick fingers and like a thumb, So they are capable of grabbing things and doing all that, but they've got this like snout like a pig. They've got these sunken eyes. And we're told by Ambassador Sarek that the Tellarites enjoy arguing for the sake of arguing, not because they want an answer. Which is something that will be repeated throughout the series. Tellarites are an argumentative species. Now we learn later on it's not because they're disrespectful or they just like arguing their culture just is like that and i think that's kind of fun because they're pigs like they're actually pigs so they made their culture that of pigs (laughs) like things that we would see as being like pig-like behavior like don't be an idiot don't come in here arguing for the sake of arguing that's just rude to them if you don't argue you're seen as weak arguing is a normal way of life you're always trying to argue not because you want to win but that's just how their society works they're argumentative they're very in your face sort of people which is also why they found so much success in space, and in business, and in mining, because they argue. Like any good businessman, they will keep arguing with you until you eventually give in and give them what they want, or at least compromise with them to make them shut up. <laughs> and we see Ambassador Garth is his name, Ambassador Garth. And he approaches Serik, who is at the table having one of these Play-Doh bits. And he says, how will you vote? You know, talking about the Corridan thing. And Serek answers, why should I tell you how I would vote? I will tell you what my government has asked me to say when we reach Babel. And the teller I says, no, you're going to tell me what you want now because lots of people will vote in accordance to the Vulcans and I need to know how you're going to vote. I don't care what your government thinks, what do you think? And I understand his frustration, I feel like dealing with Vulcans would be utterly brain-numbing, especially in something like politics like this, where they're so letter and impersonal about everything that I, too, would probably be like the Talarite yelling at them out of frustration after a short time. But he tries, and then Serec turns around, and we get an interesting um, showing again of Vulcan strength. He doesn't hurt him. He doesn't actually hit him or anything. He turns around, and he says to him, You Talarites just enjoy arguing for the sake of arguing. We will discuss this when we get to there, when we get to Babel, not before. And then he says, oh no, sorry, he says that at first, and then they argue, and then he turns and says, fine, then I will tell you, I intend to vote to allow Corridan into the Federation. And and like I said earlier, it's because as he described, the people have lots of resources, low population, and they require help to protect themselves from illegal mining activities. And Garth gets angry at this. He says, Are you accusing my people of illegal mining activities? And Sarah calmly responds with, Well, your people have been found in multiple scans to have corroded and Dilithium inside of their holds of some of your ships coming out of the region. Whether you mined it yourself or you bought it from other people doesn't matter. Your people have been involved with the business of getting something you shouldn't have. And I will vote to allow them in to avoid such things happening. And of course, the Tellarite at this sees this as an insult to his people and tries to hit Sarek. And this is where we get the Vulcan moment where Sarek sort of uses his fists, sort of just pushes, pushes him back. It almost looks like he's putting him up to block as if he's going to get hit in the sides of the head. But in that moment, that Vulcan strength not only blocks him, but it throws him back so that he hits the wall. And we see that like, yeah, even a 100-year-old Vulcans, have this strength this is a part of who they are and once again I would say that uh, if I was in this universe seeing that I would again be very very grateful that the Vulcans are not warlords and that they choose to self-regulate themselves because their power, their logic and their physical prowess could have made them the ultimate warlords had they gone down a different path. I think everyone should be glad they did not. Well. Okay, they didn't. We'll we'll talk about Romulans when we get the Romulans. (laughs) They're sort of connected, sort of. But, so we get this scene, and it's interesting, and it it shows how much tension there is in the room. It shows a lot of, like, Kirk comes in, by the way, at this point. He sees this happen, and he literally stands between them and loudly announces to both that so long as he is in command of this ship, he will have order no matter what it takes. Which is a very Kirk putting his foot down, throwing his authority around the way Kirk does, you know back down or I will have you both put in your quarters. Basically comes in and slaps them around like they were little kids and tells them, be good or I will punish you. <laughs> Sarek, of course, in that sarcastic Vulcan way, just nods at the captain and says, of course, captain. Which leaves the Tellarite in a position where, if he keeps fighting, he's going to look like the unreasonable one. So as an ambassador, he smartly nods at the captain and says, I apologize, captain, we will deal with this at Babel. Which is smart. ...to the nice thing, then they both back off... ...and then we see Kirk like, ugh... (laughs) ...he's not really into politics... ...now we get a fun little scene after that... ...of, across the room... ...we have Dr. McCoy coming up to Spock's mother... ...and he says to her... ...so, when Spock was young... ...he is half-human, these days he's very much a Vulcan... ...but when he was young, did he show human tendencies? Did he run around and play like human boys? ...because, you know, it's McCoy... ...he's always looking for ways to laugh... Well, not laugh at Spock, but pick on Spock in that friendly way. He wants ammo, and he's basically asking his his mother, like, did he do anything embarrassing as a child that I could possibly use? And his mother smiles and says, well, he did have a teddy bear back home. And then she sort of smiles, and you should see the smile on McCoy's face is ear to ear. And he's like, a oh, teddy bear. Like, you can see it in his eyes. He's never going to let Spock live down the fact that he had a teddy bear. And then his mother... You know, leaves, she has to go and says, I need to go see my husband after what happened. And McCoy looks at Spock and says, a teddy bear, huh? And Spock cracks up. Oh, he doesn't crack up, sorry. Spock looks at him and says, yes, but on Vulcan, the teddy bear is about six feet tall and has fangs. Which, fun story, later on in the animated series, we're actually going to see said beast. I'm pretty sure it's the animated series one of the series there's some kind of time travel thing where we see a young Spock with said teddy bear and it is animated it is a big beast like this thing is basically a small grizzly bear which of course of of course Vulcans with their enormous strength would have pets that are basically grizzly bears and they would tame them because that's just the most Vulcan shit ever but I love that his mother even as a human describes it as a teddy bear which is a fun She's being playful and allowing the crew and what she sees as uh, friends of her son to play around and pick on her son a little bit, but also doing so in a way where once they learn the truth, they will gain respect for him, like, holy shit, that's a big beast. You had one of those as a pet, which is a very fun and nice motherly moment where it's like, yeah, she didn't be overly protective, nor did she disrespect him or hurt his reputation, which is i think perfect she handled that situation very well but it was funny nonetheless to see mccoy's pure joy now not long after this we get an idea that a bit of time has passed kirk's up on the bridge no sorry he's not on the bridge kirk is currently in his quarters at this point so i assume this is like later in the day and his monitor well not his monitor but his like little intercom thing next to his bed lights up and says security to the captain he activates it and says, yes, security, report. And security says, we just found a dead Tellerite outside of the ambassador's quarters. Sir, so I believe it is the Tellerite ambassador. Which, of course, is like, oh shit, the worst thing that can ever happen when you're transporting politicians for a summit is that one of them dies in transit between because the amount of tension and things that are going to be thrown out between all of them could literally lead to war. This is a very bad situation. So they quietly, you know, they get McCoy and they get Spock and they get Kirk and everybody that's required, some security, some medics. They all come down and they investigate, like, what the hell is happening? And they confirm, yes, this is Ambassador Garth, the same guy that we saw thrown against the wall by Sarek earlier. And immediately there's, they discover that the way he died is the vertebrae on the back of his neck are broken in such a way where they say the death would have been instantaneous and pain-free. And then when they start saying, well, who on board could have done this? And another, I mean, Kirk brings up, I hate to say this, Spock, but earlier I had to break up a fight between your father and this ambassador. So, Ambassador Sarek and Ambassador Garth. And then Spock says, yes, well, with Vulcan strength, any Vulcan could do this. And what does he call it? He says, this is an old execution method called Talshir." <laughs> Sorry, sorry. I just realized something. Telshiar is an ancient vulcan um an ancient vulcan execution method and the Telshiar is what the CIA equivalent of the Romulans is. I just it just connected in my brain that the Telshiar is basically um executor organization and it made me laugh because of course of course romulans would name their cia equivalent after an execution method from the ancient days that's the most romulan shit ever anyway not talking about romulans but that was interesting and he says this is a vulcan way of you know in the past executing people and he and then the captain says who would be capable of doing this and he says well any vulcan any vulcan on board could do it And Kirk says, I'm sorry, but your father was fighting with him earlier in this situation. Could he physically have done this? And Spock says, yes. He says, logically, my father would not kill anyone unless he had a logical reason to do so. However, yes, physically, he could do this. He knows how to do this. He knows of the method. I think he even says, I was taught the method from him. So, like yes it is confirmed in that moment that he is now the main suspect because not long before they were fighting in the hall and then afterwards he's found dead so you know you put the pieces together it's not exactly confirmation that he killed him but i agree with them that he is now the prime suspect so they all go to his quarters to see him he's not currently there his wife is though and she's like what's happening is something wrong because like Spock and the Captain and the Doctor are all coming to visit along with a security guard or two and she's like, "Is, is everything okay? And they explain to her what happened and then she says, well I don't think he could have done this he's been off meditating. And then the doors slide open and Sarek comes in and says, what is all of this? They explain what's happening Sarek looks at them and says, I was in quiet meditation on my own Spock could tell you that this is something we do not discuss, particularly with Earthmen and Kirk says, Well, isn't that convenient? Because we have a dead man, and I saw you fighting with him not long before. And before Seric can respond with any kind of like reason or idea of why, he's sort of leaning, he has like one hand on a chair behind a desk, and he suddenly convulses and begins having a Vulcan equivalent of a heart attack, where one of the valves in his heart starts to act up and causes problems. And his wife, man, she loses it. Everyone does, actually. The instantaneous movement of McCoy, who has medical equipment in hand, scanning him while supporting his weight. Almost in one swift motion, he manages to do it all. The captain's there helping to support him. Spock takes a step forward. The wife, to everyone, instantly is forward to help him. And they say it's the equivalent of a heart attack. Now, the next scene is in the med bay. And in the med bay, of course, Sarek is laying in a bed looking very sweaty, like a man who just survived a heart attack. And Kirk tries to say to his wife on the side, has there been any other attacks like this before? And she says, not to my knowledge, this is the first. And then from across the room, you hear Sarek in the bed say, yes, there have been three others. And she loses it. she immediately very emotional, like, How, what the hell? What do you mean you've had three heart attacks? You've had all these heart attacks now and you haven't told me why didn't you tell me you were sick and then he says, I forget what he says it's like benzadril or something he says some word, some medical term and he says a doc- a physician back home gave me that and pre- oh, prescribed that and I have been taking it and that's fine you know, that happens but it is interesting that he didn't tell his wife and he says to his wife that it was illogical to tell you you couldn't do anything about it and all it would do was stress you so I chose not to tell you which, like I said earlier, very, very much a guy thing. A lot of guys are like that. I'm like that. I prob- I'm i the sort of person that doesn't like to tell people I'm sick unless I'm dying. Because I don't want people pitying me or being stressed about me. It's just how we are. Now, I guess with Falcons it's more of a logical thing than a masculine thing. But it's still a thing. It's happening. It's the same. Now, at this point, there's a discussion with McCoy in the next scene where he's got his nurses around him and he's got... Uh, Spock has come in the room and Spock's holding one of the disk drives that to me make me laugh because the disk drives are like multicolored small square plasticky things that are plugged into the computers that apparently have data so I presume somewhere on board there's like a library of information where they can source these through all sorts of topics to quickly gain information because at this point of course it's the 1960s and the idea of a central computer and how computers work was absolutely not mainstream yet so You know, they were trying. It's not as advanced sci-fi as you think. It's more the equivalent of a file room stored in digital format somewhere on the ship. But, you know, they tried. For the era, I think they did the best they could with the tech they had to make it seem futuristic. And we see McCoy in front of his computer with a stack of these things. All sorts of colours, and they're all over the desk, as if he's been going through file after file. Presumably going through Vulcan physiology, updating himself on all the things of their anatomy that he needs to know for this looking up the surgeries he has to take you know doing the responsible doctor thing of like okay i have to save my patient what can i what do i need to know looking for treatments and he discovers that the problem is seric has a rare type of blood i think they say y type i don't know if it matters or if it comes up again but and nurse chapel comes out and says i've just checked the ship's stores Doctor, and I'm sorry, but there isn't enough Vulcan blood and plasma on board to perform the surgery, even if it was Y-type, and none of it is. And Sparrow says, it's a rare blood type. I think Spock says, actually, that it's a rare blood type. And then Spock says, well, I have type Y. And McCoy says to him, I appreciate that you wish to help, and that could be useful, but You wouldn't be able to give as much blood as would be possible to keep yourself alive and save your father. It's just not possible. You can't do this alone. And then Spock pulls out one of these little drives and says, Here, it is an experimental treatment, and he says what it is, and the doctor, presumably has already read and dismissed this idea, says, No, that's a Rigelian treatment. The Rigelians came up with it, and apparently what it does is it ups the amount of blood that your body can produce by 200%. Which is, you yeah, know, incredible sort of thing. that I think there's nothing like that in real life, but I'm pretty sure there are certain drugs and things that you can take that do force your body to, like, up the amount of blood that it's doing. I forget what it is, but I'm pretty sure there's a thing because I think they give it to patients after things like blood loss and serious injuries or post-surgeries. They'll give them some of this stuff. I forget what it... It doesn't do 200 times. That's ridiculous. I don't think on earth we have anything close to that, but it does up production of blood. Like, this is not... A completely ridiculous treatment, this is a thing that can be real. But, um, and he says, why don't we use this? Then my father would have enough blood. And he says, no, that wouldn't work with the condition of his heart and his organs. It puts pressure on the spleen and other things to do this. And he says, like, this was made for Rigelians. There's only been tested on Rigelians. We don't even know if it would work with a Vulcan. And even if it did, the amount of pressure it would put on his organs, there's no way. I couldn't do that. To which Spock proposes, then I shall take it. That way he can transfuse the blood from me to my father during the surgery. Which, you know, is a very logical solution, does make sense, but it's also very dangerous. As the doctor points out, he's like, this could be dangerous to you, this is experimental treatment. And he says, on top of that, I understand Vulcan anatomy and have read about it and looked at what I have to do. But knowing what you have to do and having actual surgical experience with a new species is two very different things. And if I don't kill him during the surgery, the last thing I want is to also have you die because of a mistreatment and then have to try and explain that to everyone. Which, you know, very, very very valid points from the doctor. Because this is something he has never done before. He's competent, but yeah, this is a big deal. Now, as the episode goes on, we learn about more of what's going on. So Kirk, not long after this... He's um, in a room, in a hallway, he's walking, and we see an Endorian come up with a knife. And he tries to take out the captain, which, you know, if you've paid attention to Star Trek up till this point, you can't take down Kirk that easy. Kirk's a madman, he knows how to fight. He gives him the old double fist across the face, and Mugan beats him down. But before he goes down, he does actually get both slashed and stabbed. We see the knife go in on the side, and then we see it slash across his shirt before the alien goes down. Kirk manages to knock out the Andorian, and then he calls the bridge and says, Bridge, I've just been attacked by an Andorian outside of my quarters. And then he goes to say something about security. He says, get security, and then he starts like falling down the wall, because obviously the adrenaline is leaving his system, the blood loss is kicking in, and he's beginning to lose consciousness. And he manages to say important before he collapses. Of course, the next scene is in the med bay, where we have Sarek still in his bed, and then we have Kirk in a bed across the Medbay, who has now, you know, got a bandage going across his side of his torso because he's been injured. And we get a report that the man who hurt you was an Endorian. He has been taken to the brig. He is still alive. He's being interrogated right now. And throughout this, I forgot to mention we had a weird Earlier in the episode, there was a little scene with Uhura where she said there was a weird transmission earlier aimed towards the ship. And it was in some kind of cipher of a language we don't understand. Now, you know, that in itself isn't that unusual in space, even in real life. We know there are certain radio signals and things that travel around just based on, you know, different stars and orbits and things like that. Radiation, like, but she does say specifically, this is not random. Like, this was sent by someone. We just don't know who or to who it was sent. At first, it's not really thought about, but then after the attack, a small vessel is found to be following the ship behind them, and it is apparently capable of doing, like, warp 8 or 9, which is a lot higher than I think we're able to do at this point. I forget what the Enterprise can do at this point, but I think it's only, like, warp 5 or 6. Like, it's not until next generation we start hitting the warp 9s. You know, so at this point, they can't do that. So, this ship is apparently faster than them, but it's smaller than them. But it's also keeping a hell of a distance, and when I say behind, like it's not like a car behind you, this is space behind, as in hundreds of thousands of kilometers behind. But the trajectory of its movement shows that it is following the ship, and it has been changing its trajectory every time the ship moved. So it is tracking them, it's following them, they just don't know why. They then work out, you know, after the Prisma is down there, down in the brig, we get another message from Uhura who tells the captain, I just saw there is another transmission from the ship, except, you need to hear this, it is being transmitted to, from us, well, not us, but she says someone on board is transmitting. At which point, they try and work out who it is. Now, the problem at this point, Sarek is ready for his surgery, as we discussed, he uh, needs his heart surgery, well, um, what's his name, Spock, needs to take his special pill, and he needs to get ready for the transfusion. But he refuses, he tells, you know, he that Sarek's ops start going down, like his organs are getting worse, and McCoy basically says, at this point it's no longer an option, I wasn't willing to do this before, but now I don't have a choice, it's the only option available to me and I have to try and save my patient, Spock, I need you to come here and do this, and help me save him, and Spock says no. He says, I'm sorry, but under the circumstances, I cannot risk the life of all the crew on board while we are being followed by another ship. There is a murderer on board who is currently being interrogated, and we don't know if he was alone. The ship is being followed, and if all this goes wrong, we have multiple people aboard, and this could end in a war. He says, I will not risk the lives of the entire crew for one person. It would be illogical. I am sorry. So long as the captain is here, I am in command, and command does not award personal privilege which you know very fair i feel like more of our leaders could take a little bit of that on board this you know just because i'm in charge doesn't mean i can use my authority to benefit me i have to protect everyone else even if it means his father might die he's not willing to step down and then he leaves and mccoy and everyone's kind of dumbfounded like what do you mean we don't really see serek's response but you know we can assume that he as a vulcan probably agrees. He would have been disappointed in his son had he sat down and done it right then and there. Now, as it goes on, we learn that ship that was following them is coming closer. It's coming closer, and they think it's going to attack. Now, we see a quick scene down in the brig where the Endorian ambassador is there. The actual ambassador, not the guy that's been locked up that attacked Kirk, because that guy was one of his entourage, one of his helpers or whatever. And he's being asked, like, what do you know of this man? How long has he been on board? What do you have on him? And he says outright, like, I don't know this man. He was assigned to me at my last bastion, at my last station, before I came aboard. So far, he has served me adequately, but he hasn't been much on small talk. I know nothing of him. And then he says, the Endorian people and I personally have nothing against the captain, nothing but respect. We would not wish harm on him in any way. We did not mack this, nor do we support it. Which is, you know, sort of reassuring, but also in that moment, as Starfleet's point of view, you can't really take that as truth, because we don't know what's happening, and he could be just lying. But you also can't arrest him based on that, because he has cooperated. Now, you know, he leaves, and then we get the ship is attacking. So all the um, crew are forced to deal with this. Now, Spock is up top, and he... Well, sorry, the ship hasn't attacked yet, but it's getting closer. Like, it's going to attack, it's closing the gap now to get within firing range. Kirk talks to McCoy down in the sick bags, remember he's been stabbed and he's in a bed right now resting, and says, Spock won't, you know, he wakes up because he's been unconscious for a while, he wakes up and he's like, what's going on? Gets a breakdown, goes to get up, finds that it's very painful, because of course he's been stabbed, all his core muscles are currently damaged and probably putting pressure on them, like trying to get up hurts a lot. And he finds out that the surgery hasn't started on Ambassador Sarek because Spock will refuse to step down. And Kirk kind of scoffs and goes, can't fault him for his loyalty at least. Like, you know, even when his father life is in danger, he is still a Starfleet man through and through. He will follow it to the Order. Even if that means sacrificing his dad, which, you know, like I said, respectable, but also kind of weird. A little weird, but yeah, respectable anyway. So this is all going on Kirk then comes up with a plan with McCoy and says I am going to pretend I'm fine I'm going to go up to the bridge you're going to patch me up and give me something if you can to keep me on my feet temporarily I'm going to tell Spock that I'm fine and I'm going to dismiss him so he can come and help you with his surgery because he'll only do it if I go back and take command and then he said as soon as he gets here to take part of the surgery I will call Scotty from engineering to take command and I will go rest in my quarters you know and McCoy's like okay that's a fair compromise like you're going to rest you're going to let someone else take command and then i can do my surgeries like all right i approve this so they go and do that spock shocked to see kirk faking it because he comes up and he's faking confidence and he's leaning against the chair and saying you know asking for reports from everyone telling ohura to make sure she's scanning for messages inside the ship to try and track down who it is that is sending messages to this little ship outside and Spock goes off now Spock goes to the med bay with the doctor and he agrees to the surgery now briefly as the surgery is beginning we see the green blood in the tubes beginning to transfuse between spock to his father he remembers something he realizes something about the power signature of the ship following them and says i need to speak to the captain and tries to get up and is injected by nurse chapel which knocks him unconscious at which point mccoy just says yes well trust the captain to deal with that i need you here and he turns and starts you know the surgery, which. Good on McCoy. He's a good doctor. He does what he has to do. Spock's now unconscious. Now, Kirk is about to call Scotty up to the bridge to take command at this point because obviously he is faking it. It's probably taking everything he has to stay standing because he's still physically wounded. He was just stabbed like earlier this today. And then the ship shakes because the little ship's caught up and it's now opening fire. But at that moment, Uhura says that in the brig is where it's coming from, as in the transmission on their ship, and they realize that the guy in the brig, the Andorian, must have a transmitter on him that is talking to that ship. So they go down and they search it, and we see security tries to search him, the guy tries to fight, he knocks one of the security guards over, and the other one stuns him with the phaser. When he stuns him, he falls over. The antenna hits the ground and snaps off his head, which is pretty unusual for an Andorian, which is the first sign that he's not an Endorian. he's someone that has been surgically altered to look like an Andorian. Now, at that point you know something's very wrong, the ship's under attack, this guy's not actually an Endorian. What the hell? Now they get the transmitter, and Kurt comes up with kind of a brilliant idea, they try and shoot the ship at first, obviously, they try and fight back, and they realize that that ship is channeling way too much of its power into its weapons and sensors, to the point that that small ship, there's no way it can keep this up. And they basically determine the ship is on a suicide mission and doesn't intend to go home. It's here just to destroy us. Which makes them even more dangerous, of course. Now, they try and fight it, and at first the ship is too fast. Because it's channeling so much power to its engines, it's able to move beyond the speed the phasers can compensate for. So Kurt comes up with the idea, shut every system on the ship down except the phasers. Now, at this point, they've brought up the prisoner from the brig. He's been brought back to consciousness, and he's been dragged up to the... Um, captain's side so that Kirk can say tell them to surrender like what do you know and he says I will tell you nothing he basically refuses to work with them and he's very sarcastic and all over the place and he just stands there and then Kirk like I said makes all the power turn off and then when it's off it seems the ship isn't able to target them because it must be focusing in on their power or something It doesn't seem to know what it's doing, and its movements get a little bit slower and more sluggish. And at that point, he says to Mr. Chekhov, Fire! As soon as they can. And he makes him manually aim the phaser and fire on him. That way, they're unable to pick up on all the electronic signatures. Oh, sorry. When I said all powers are down, obviously, the med bay where the surgery is happening is considered an emergency system, so it stays online. Don't worry. Sarek makes it. But, um... Yeah, and this was a brilliant move because the ship isn't able to target, and then it's hit. Mr. Chekov does it, shoots the ship, disables it, we see it break into like three pieces. And then Kirk turns and brings all systems back online and says to Uhura, contact that ship if there are any survivors that wish to surrender, tell them we are willing to give aid. And at that point, the ship explodes. You see it in the view screen, I guess it is, the view screen, we see the ship explode. And the Endorian next to him laughs and says, Captain, they had orders. They were not allowed to come back. They obviously self-destructed. This mission was a one-way trip. And then he looks at the captain and says, And it was a one-way trip for me too. In a matter of speaking, my self-destruct is happening now. And he tells them that he has taken a slow-release poison that is already in his system with no known cure. They try and drag him very quickly to the the turbo lift to get him to medbay to try and save him so they can, you know, work out who the hell he is. But before he can even get in the turbo lift, he says, I believe I have miscalculated on the time. It's working faster than expected. And then basically just falls over dead. So, unfortunately, they're left in this position where, yes, they've won. They've realized they've won, but they're not really sure what happened. Until afterwards, Spock is actually the one that works it out. because, Or well, Spock and McCoy, because they do an autopsy on the body. When Spock wakes up, of course, he's fine, Sarek is going to be fine, that's all nice, and we have a nice little sweet moment of the two of them there, and Spock's mother's back and forth between them, trying to be so human while they're so Vulcan, not showing any, they're both basically bonding over how emotional she is, and then Spock says to his father, why did you marry her? She is so emotional. And... And Sarek sort of just shrugs his shoulders and says, oh, I don't know. It seemed like the logical thing at the time and then holds his, he- his wife's hand, which, again, is sweet. I have to say, that I really like that Spock's mother being a full human is able to look past the fact that Vulcans are kind of rude and a bit standoffish and she truly does love him anyway. They're together, she raises a son and like, it can't be easy being a human on a planet full of Vulcans. She obviously loves him or she wouldn't be there and I think that's kind of nice. It's also very interesting that Sarek for all of his high and mighty I am a Vulcan and logic is all that matters he married a human which tells me that he's not he's a bit more progressive than your average Vulcan because your average Vulcan wouldn't even be interested in a human they're too emotional and illogical but he made that decision and because of that Spock exists but anyway like it's a nice moment it's sweet but we find out at the end that uh Through the autopsy of the body, the guy that was dressed up as an Endorian and surgically altered is an Orion. Now, I don't know if you remember the Orion Traders, but the Orion Traders were actually mentioned earlier on in a couple episodes. Basically, they are green. They have green skin. They're sort of humanoid. And they are known for dirty, like, black market stuff. Like, they sell weapons to either side. They basically established that what the Talarites had... You know, how I mentioned earlier, the Vulcans had said they had scanned some Tellarite ships that had it on board, all that dilithium from Corridon. They say that what they think happened was the Orion traders were actually the ones illegally mining it secretly on Corridon, and then they were trading it. So the Tellarites being the Tellarites, they're a little shady at times. They've probably made under-the-table deals with Orion to get some extra dilithium. So, he was right when Sarek said that it was the Tellarites that had been mining it, but he was also wrong, because they weren't mining, they were just buying from the people who did mine, but they were aware of the illegal mining, and that's probably why they were trying to get Corridon to not join the Federation. Because if it joins the Federation, then the Tellerites would have to acknowledge the fact that they're buying from criminals, and they'd have to go against the Orion, which is less dilithian for them. So it makes sense, that's why they didn't want to vote for it. Everyone else did. And I th- I feel like after Garth dies, they probably change their stance to, uh, this is embarrassing for us. Yes, we'll vote to keep them in. We apologize. Anyway, the Orion Free Traders basically wanted this to be a war. They sent this ship on a one-way mission with the guy planted on the ship to cause chaos and keep them tracked with the transmitter and the other ship to blow it up. Hoping that it would create suspicion. People knew the Tellarites had bought some off them. People might suspect it was them. The Vulcans might open fire. Maybe if Serek and the Federation's flagship had been destroyed during this, there might have been a full-on war in between Federation members over this incident. Which, for the Orion traders, is ideal. Because they're weapon traders. If there's a war, they can profiteer both sides. They can sell each side dilithium, weapons, anything they want. So from their point of view, it makes perfect sense. Of course they wanted this. But anyway, like... Journey to Babel is one of those episodes that I feel like I always will remember because it's, well, you learn a lot about the Federation, you learn a lot about Spock, you learn a lot about a lot of things in Star Trek, actually, in this episode, and it's cool. It's always fun to have an episode where there's lots of different aliens on screen at once, because Star Trek doesn't often do that, usually we're just dealing with whoever the alien of the week is. But yeah, uh, let me have a look, so... Did I put any little notes, special notes about this episode? So, yep, yeah, McCoy was overjoyed to hear about Spock's teddy bear as a child. I said that. Tellaride and Dorian's first appearance. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I failed to mention. This is... Kirk is wearing his famous green shirt. It's this shirt that, like, it has a V-neck, but the V-neck goes down to, like, basically the middle of his chest, so half of kirk's chest is just on screen every time he's in this shirt he's he's half naked wearing it is what it feels like and it's this weird long-sleeved green shirt with a really really big v-neck it's it's very unusual i don't really know what it is and like it gets laughed at a lot by the fans apparently i remember reading this apparently the shirt itself is not actually green apparently the shirt is meant to be a very like weird shade of yellow But the setting lights that they used on all the Star Trek sets made it appear green. I don't know if I believe that to be quite frank, because it just looked green to me. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it really was yellow, like they said, and just is the lights. But it's funny, because it's one of those weird, like, there is no green shirt. You've heard of red shirts. Like, red is, at this point, red is your basic crewmen and your engineers and all of those sorts of people. And security, I think. And Yellow is command and officer rank. Blue is sciences. You know, that's how we understand it. But there is no green. And I don't think at any point in Star Trek there is ever a green shirt. That's just not what they do. So it's weird that, like, Kirk is the only member of, I think, any Starfleet series we see wearing a green shirt. And it's kind of famous for it. I don't know. I actually think the shirt looks kind of cool. I... I mean, not cool, but like, I like the uniqueness of it being green. I almost kind of wish the Captains did have their own unique color. It'd be kind of cool if every Captain wore green, just as a distinction of rank, but whatever. It's a Kirk special. Although I will say, we do see it once more, I believe, in Enterprise, where Captain Archer will wear literally Kirk's green shirt, which is quite a funny moment, but we won't see that for a very long time. But anyway, thank you for listening. Thank you for coming by, and thank you to anyone that hears this for your patience while I was dealing with... uh, Me being me, really. just I'm very bad at sticking to things. I'm trying to do better with that. I'm in a pretty good spot at the moment. I'm looking forward to recording a lot more of these. In fact, straight after this, I'm going to go record the next episode, which is... Give me one moment to check that out for you. The next episode is called Friday's Child, which is what I'm going to be watching basically in a few minutes. So... Bye for now. I'll see you all next time.